Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex, who have we got on today? So today we have historian and best-selling author Miranda Kaufman, who's written uh, the book Black Tudors, uh, which I absolutely love. Miranda, hello. Hello. How are you doing? How's lockdown? Well, I'm in sitting here in sunny Wales. Um, I've always worked from home, so that's a bonus. I'm basically feeling pretty blessed in my, you know, spending a lot of time with my delightful children. Um, well, it's a pretty worrying time. Yeah, I have to kind of not watch the news most of the time. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just become so full of um, people's underlying motives as to why they're presenting a story a different way, especially when you see the stuff coming out of America that it's just like, I, I just cannot be bo- bothered to, to sit in on the row between Trump and the journalists. And uh, yeah, I think the daily briefings, uh, the government have kept them going, haven't they? Because the journalists said they wanted them, but they're not particularly useful on a daily basis anymore no it, it, it's, it's it's just all very worrying um yeah <laughs> let's talk just just talk about history let's just go back into our little historian bubble then so alina start us off with a question so how did you get onto the topic this specific topic as a historian uh well i suppose i was always fairly obsessed with the tudors um ever since primary school uh and um i did history at oxford and i wanted to carry on and i was sort of trying to find something that people nobody else had researched to to look into and i was in a lecture so my mind wandered in a lecture so i was in a lecture about early modern trade it was pretty dry but then it ran suddenly they the guy said oh uh you know the tudors started trading to africa in the middle of the 16th century and i was surprised because you know, I'd only ever heard about trade with Africa in the context of the 18th century slave trade. Absolutely, yeah. Or at, at, so, so, um, so I was like, oh, okay, what was that like? Um, you know, what did the Tudors, who, you know, we all think we know so well, what did they make of the Africans that they encountered on the Guinea coast? And what, and what did those Africans make of, you know, the likes of uh, John Hawkins? Uh, and, and it's sort of, so I, I, you know, like any good student, I rushed off to the library and um, started reading around it and quite quickly found these references to there actually being Africans in Tudor England and Scotland, uh, not Tudor Scotland, Stuart Scotland. Uh, and uh, I, so I, I was really intrigued, but there wasn't a lot of details. So uh, I had to find out more. Um, which is how any good project gets really started as a historian. You can't find the book you want. You go, bugger it, I'm going to write my own. Um, <laughs> but Africans had been in Britain for a long time prior to the Tudors, hadn't they? 
yeah in in sort of different forms and mm. uh, uh so you know there 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 are, there are uh, you, you find there was there were some Africans in in Roman Britain, um, although they tend to be more North Africans. Um, you know, there was even a Roman emperor called Septimus Severus, who was born in Libya, although he probably wasn't um, of African descent. His wife might have been. Um, so there, there are sort of patches here and there, um, but it is in and you and it, it is, but it is in the the. Um, early modern Tudor period that um, the numbers are bigger and they tend to be more from, from West Africa as well. Um, when you came to looking for Tudors, um, you found something like when you were doing the book, nearly 400 individuals in the period, didn't you? How did the black Tudors actually come to be in England? Uh, well, I should, I should stretch that the, the sort of uh, 360 plus was mm. um, up to I looked up to 1640, so it's actually the early student period as well, and probably for the specific sort of Tudor period, it was more like 200 um, ish. But uh, so that I kind of identified three main ways in which they came here. Um, firstly, from countries in southern Europe that already had relatively large black populations, uh, like Spain, Portugal, and Italy, um, often in the entourage of uh, royal figures like Catherine of Aragon or Philip II of Spain or uh, merchants um, including some Jewish um, converso merchants from Portugal uh, sometimes aristocrats as well um, in the early 17th century you have a, uh, an, a, a, a female aristocrat bringing, bringing an African uh, enslaved woman back uh, from Venice with her in the 1620s uh, so that was one way. And then, you know, going back to that um, early Tudor trade with Africa from the 1550s, you find uh, groups of Africans, often of quite noble birth, being brought back to London, taught English, and then sent back out to Africa to work as trade um, interpreters and factors. Uh, and then this third way uh, uh, was was privateering. So uh, kind of legalised piracy when the English were out capturing Spanish and Portuguese ships uh, they would quite often find Africans on board and bring bring them home. So it's all sort of part of England being kind of slightly peripheral to a much bigger, you know, bigger movements of people around the world, and uh, specifically that the Spanish and Portuguese who who would kind of got there first in a lot of these um, and endeavours. So your book shows that the Black Tudor population uh, spread across society, didn't it? Um, they're also in the royal households. Yes, uh, that's perhaps one of the most visible. Visible. So uh, there are actually more Africans at the Scottish court of James the Fourth than there were in any of the English courts. Uh, but we do see Africans. Uh, John Blank, who's uh, you know the cover image for my book. It's mm -hmm. the only, he's the only um, known. Uh, it's the only known identifiable portrait of an African in Tudor England. It's beautiful, uh, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so, so he's uh, depicted twice actually in the Westminster tournament role of 1511, playing his trumpet. Um, and um, there were also Africans at the court of um, Elizabeth I, James I, Charles I. Um, so, so yeah, there's this sort of constant presence there. And then at the completely other end of the scale. Um, Tell us about Anne Cobby and where did you find your evidence of her? That's fascinating that you were able to find her. Um, so she's described as uh, 
a, uh, a single woman. Uh, she dies in Almondsbury in Gloucestershire in 1625. Uh, and we actually only have sort of one scrap of paper about her. Um, I can't claim to have discovered it. Um, it was already known to the archivists in Bristol where it's kept when I went there. Um, so I think I, I must have heard, I think I must have read about it somewhere else, but I forget. But uh, it is this, uh, it's called an inventory. So um, if you died and you didn't leave a, no, even if you did leave a will, if you died and you had goods worth after, over a certain amount, sort of about five pounds, I think, um, you know, people would appraise the value of your goods. So they would write a list of everything you owned and say how much it was worth. Um, uh, you know, as part of the probate um, yes. activities, and um, and and so what? That's what we have for her. She didn't leave a will, but we have a list of her goods, and um, it, it just says what she owned, and it doesn't it doesn't ever include sort of land or, or property. I don't think, but anyway, it has sort of personal effects and property. So the most valuable thing she had was a cow uh, that was worth just over three pounds, and then you know it, it's sort of all her wearing apparel various sort of cooking utensils, a pewter candlestick, you know, various bits and bobs. Um, and so, so it's, it's quite, it's just a little snapshot of, mm. of, of life. And so I, yeah, I did quite a lot of, kind of deep analysis of that sort of trying to sort of uh, milk would be the appropriate verb in the cow's context, I suppose, trying to milk every last sort of ounce of um, detail about what that could tell us about her life. Mm. And there are lots of people in between, aren't there? Um, tell us about Jacques Francis. I love his story. Uh, so Jacques Francis was a salvage diver uh, working in Southampton in the 1540s. Um, and, uh, you know, this is part, this is just sort of this fantastic, uh, surprising sort of fact to some people that, you know, in the early modern world, most white people couldn't swim, but um, people from Africa were actually very talented swimmers and divers and they're, skills were sort of sought after um you know as pearl divers uh, in the caribbean or in this case in sa as salvage divers and you know we've all we've all heard of the mary rose when we do Tudor history um but we didn't know that jack francis and possibly a couple of other african salvage divers actually died dove dove dived uh, down, <laughs> down, to, down to the wreck to try and salvage uh, some of the gun the valuable guns um in the you know, in, within a couple of years after the ship sank, that's amazing. And the other, you know, the other really key thing about him in terms of history is that he's the first known African to testify in a English court of law. That's right. Yeah, I remember reading that, which is really really significant in terms of legal status because mm -hmm. um, if enslaved people throughout history have not been allowed to testify in court. Um, so the fact that he was a witness in this case, so so his uh, so he's working for a Venetian guy called Peter Paolo Corsi, who uh, sort of is a you know organizes the whole salvage operation, and um, he's basically accused by some Italian merchants in Southampton. There were a lot of Italian merchants in in early modern Southampton, uh, but that's another story. Uh, but he's accused by this Italian merchants of stealing some tin from another wreck that they're working on, and so it all goes to court, and that's where we learn about Jack Francis. Really, is from this court case. Uh, what about De Diego, the um... circumnavigator? Yeah, that one, whatever she said. 
The one that sailed around the world with Francis Drake. Mm. Um, so yeah, I love this. Actually, someone on Twitter today or yesterday was saying, you know, he's 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 a firm favourite. Um, <laughs> we really need a biopic um, of Diego. You know, the uh, the first scene of the movie would be, you know, in this um, uh, in the early hours of the morning in sorry in July. Uh, was it July fifteen seventy two? Yeah, the the uh, the English ships have docked in Nombre de Dios in Panama, and uh, along along the quay comes a running figure, and they shoot at him, but he keeps shouting and saying, "Please let me aboard, let me aboard," uh, and they keep shooting at him, but eventually he persuades them their lives are in danger, uh, and and he tells them, you know, that they really. That you know the Spanish, the Spanish are heavily armed in the town, and if they don't stop their attack now, they're all going to get killed. Uh, and that's how Diego kind of inveigles his way onto Drake's ship. Um, oh, this is on an earlier raid of the Caribbean, uh, rather than the voyage around the world. Mm. Um, that's how they meet, and then he fought, he brokers this amazing uh, alliance again, something that kind of doesn't fit with what we think we know. Um, a an alliance between Drake and his men and the Simaroons who were um, Africans who had ensla- uh, escaped um, their enslavement by the Spaniards and set up their own settlements in the hinterland and had been sort of regularly attacking the Spanish settlements um, for about 50 years by this point uh, and they they launch an attack together um, and capture a whole load of treasure from the Spaniards that that's being transported across the Isthmus of Panama on the back of mules uh, and that's how Drake makes his first fortune. Um, and, and Diego goes back to England with him and then uh, serves as part of the crew on the circumnavigation voyage when they set out in 1577. Uh, but, you know, then the tragic denouement to the film is when he gets, uh, he dies uh, before they get home. Um, he, he dies near the Moluccas um, in, in Indonesia uh, of some arrow wounds that he sustained almost a year beforehand, and I haven't quite. I, possibly they termed gangrenous. It's not entirely clear. Mm. He's, I think he's meant to have had like twenty arrow wounds, but um, he doesn't die immediately. He lives for it for almost another year. So, yeah, and yeah, obviously it would have all the adventures um, of the voyage. Um, so yeah, like I, I am fond of fond of Diego. <laughs> Is he your favourite? Oh, well, it's very difficult. It's like asking you know a mother to choose between their children. Isn't it? <laughs> well, I, um, I, I don't think I should take that analogy too far. Again. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, I think all all books are a chill, a sort of children, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. You definitely get book brain like you get baby brain. <laughs> it always depends, you know, which one you were into at the time. You know what you were delving into. Yeah, I I, enjoy, I really enjoyed learning more about sort of early West African history when I was looking at Prince Dedery Jakawa. I was about to ask you about him and I'm really glad you pronounced his name for me so tell us about him. Well whether I pronounce it's right is anyone's guess and you know what we've got written down is in a parish record uh, in London uh, in St Mildred Poultry it was baptised on New Year's Day 1611 uh, but what we've got written down is purely you know the clerk, parish clerk of the times attempt to write down the name that he was told so you know what level of accuracy it has is anyone's guess mm. um, but he was this, a prince the son of King Kadibia apparently uh, of River Thestos in modern day Liberia uh, and he's one of these um, young noble men who were 
who, who came to London for a couple of years to learn English. So it was like a, an exchange, <laughs> an exchange student. No, uh, but he, um, yeah, we know we know he lived with a merchant called John Davies um, in uh, the city of London. Uh, and and uh, you know we know a bit more about him. Uh, this was something I kind of stuck together, which I was quite happy with. But you know we we knew knew about the parish register entry. But um, I found this reference in the East India Company letters, uh, where an East India Company merchant called Edward Blythman um, encounters this man again in in Liberia. Uh, in sort of 1614 so a few years later uh, and is surprised by how great his English is and um, uh, yeah it turns out it's the same same guy so we we have that kind of other end of jigsaw puzzle that you know that he did go back and he did interact with English merchants and um, later on. I think what your book shows us is that these people are working in society that they're examples of people are really being valued for their skills and um, they're being are they being paid accordingly? Um, well there, there is evidence of, of various individuals being paid wages yes um, I think I think we have to remember as well that Tudor society you know you didn't really have a salary in the way that you do now it's sort of a different setup as well some sort of domestic servants would sort of have board and lodging and then rewards or uh different forms of payment as well so so but yes they clearly are being compensated for their for their work so how did we then get from this kind of um just sort of this natural acceptance of africans arriving in britain and going about their business and working in society and how do we get from that to the kind of attitudes that result in the slave trade Hmm. it's a big change isn't it (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this isn't a question I have fully answered, I don't think, but mm. a lot of scholars are trying to think about it still. But um, I think, I mean, arguably, in a way, almost it was the trade in enslaved Africans that then changed attitudes, hardened attitudes more. Um, but it, I, I mean, I think a key factor is greed. And um, when when English people and Scottish people and Welsh people don't need them. Uh, you know, in Irish, but you know, when 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 the British um, realised what fortunes could be made in the New World, in the Caribbean and in America, uh, you know, it it became it became you know, useful. <laughs> to, yeah. The way the only way that they could harvest those those very high intense labour intensive crops was to enslave somebody uh you know they they tried indentured white labor it didn't work very well eventually and it just it just became uh but but i think i think also you know they're following the spanish and portuguese example as well Mm. Um, so you know they want they want an empire like the spaniards they want their own colonies and the model the colonial model that they're looking at you know is already involving um african enslavement Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
it. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What kind of sources were you using? I mean, were they actually hard to find? <laughs> there was an element of needle and haystack type yeah thing. um i think uh you know like i said you know every we're all standing on the shoulders of giants and um I, in a way part of what i was doing was bringing references together rather than finding things completely new um but uh so i had i had a starting point um there's an organization um called the Black and Asian Studies Association and a sort of pioneer of that um, called Marika Sherwood when I was just starting out sort of sent me a list of, of the references she was aware of at that time uh, which is about probably about 100 individuals on, on that list and mm. so I was able to kind of almost quadruple that uh, by going back so so one of the major sources numerically is are the parish registers of um, baptisms and burials and the of marriage um so where you know when when you know where whereas that original list had sort of sort of a reference to one one baptism in a particular parish i went back and read the entire parish register for the period and mm. was able to sort of find you know maybe the burial record of the person we already knew had been baptized or just other african individuals in that parish um and then i would look at you know the other parish registers for the same town or you know i sort of I have certainly haven't read all the parish registers in the UK, but um, that would not be fun. <laughs> well, I'm hoping they'll all get digitised. Um, yeah, there's more and more of them creeping on, but it's just again, it's like because they're not centralised. Well, it's and the, a problem, while. the other problem is that actually a lot of parish registers are now digitised. Uh, you know, like part, either thanks to the Mormons or um, you know, you can get a lot of them on Ancestry or Find My Past, um, but what is not when they've been transcribed they haven't transcribed the kind of extraneous detail which is what i want so mm. it might say um john smith you know baptized on the 6th of june 1598 but they haven't bothered to transcribe the bit where it says john smith a negro or an ethiope or whatever yeah. you know, and this is the same for any other social historian um because there's all sorts of other weird, wonderful details you find when you do read through these things. Um, I think my favourite is this um, first known reference to British Sign Language. So <laughs> this this man, who, a dumb man, a man, like, a man who, who can't speak, um, arrives at the church with a Bible in one hand and a woman in the other. One <laughs> <laughs> makes signs to the to the vicar to show that he wants to be married, um, and, and they they have this wedding. Uh, which you know you find when you're reading through the like scanning through these things mm. uh, but that stuff hasn't been transcribed in the digitization process so it you can't really search for that kind of detail at present which is annoying absolutely um what was the weirdest thing you found the weirdest thing i found 
Mm, oh, well, I suppose the most surprising thing, um, again, kind of con uh, confounding our kind of assumptions about this whole subject uh, was um, this, this incident where an African called Edward Swarthy uh, whips uh, a white man called John Guy um, in a manor house in Gloucestershire in 1596. Um, and you know, when I first called up the document, I was trying to read it. Um, I saw the word whip, and I assumed that it was the African man being whipped, but actually, it was the other way around. Um, and yeah, that was that was quite surprising, uh, but really fascinating. Um, you mentioned it when you were talking about um, Anne Cobby, but um, there is an issue, isn't there, with what with put, when you were putting this book together about the scarcity of complete evidence. It's not like you would find a whole diary written by an African in England in the Tudor period. Oh, well, one day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, exactly. I, I think actually one of, <laughs> one of the more negative Amazon reviews on the book said something like, I read this book, had absolutely no information on the topic. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. I like, do you know what? My favourite ones are the ones where they start with, I haven't read this book, but, and then they give you yeah. one star. They're my personal favourite. <laughs> that won't put anyone off, really. Yeah. But, um, but, yeah, so it's very fragmentary and a sort of jigsaw puzzle. Uh, but, you know, encouragingly, some of the school teachers I've been working with to try and get this into the classroom say that uh, the students actually quite enjoy that because it kind of, you know, shows them the kind of detective work involved in history in general uh and you know they feel yeah that they, they like they like the idea of, of trying to do that no that is cool is there any is there anyone you've looked at where there just wasn't enough to put them in the book but there was something like tantalizingly you were so close to finding something good but you were just like oh, i just don't have enough <laughs> well, uh, well, I, I do try and squeeze them into the book somewhere mm. <laughs> as a, you know, as a kind of point of contrast or whatever. But I know um, I've done it with soldiers in my war books, where I'm like, I really, there's no, there's no justification really for me putting this in, but I just like them and I want them in there. So I don't care that it's ropey and I don't really have a lot to say. I want them in there. Yeah, and and yeah, and since I've written it, people have sent me snippets as well. I mean that now have I got this right someone sent me they translated or they knew of a translation of a Hungarian visitor to Tudor England he sort of wrote, wrote a journal and he said he was sort of walking around the countryside and this African man came out of the wood with a an axe or something and he was you know quite scared but uh, then he started, the guy started talking to him and had an English accent and had clearly lived here his entire life and was very friendly uh, and it's just this fantastic okay. sort of random <laughs> and I think that's it I think that's what I, one of the things I'm trying to show is that it's sort of the ordinariness of this and those lives and they were just they were here that yeah was, you know. did you have problems with terminology like you mentioned that sometimes they're described as like an Ethiop or an African or is there like a is there people standardizing whether people are Arab and African into the same thing or have you got to be wary of that yeah I mean one of the more tricky words is more m-double-o-r mm. um, or well sometimes m-o-r-e anyway which is which is used very vaguely sometimes in this period and kind of be attached to a lot of different sorts of people uh, although there's often a kind of Prefect, you know, they might call say an Indian more or, a, but yeah, it was very vague. Um, Tudor geography was not um, brilliant. 
uh, and uh, a lot of the world map was still like here be dragons though wasn't it well yeah so, yeah. so, so it's it's yeah it, it but i yes so so that it is that is one of the, the problems um but yeah i did my best <laughs> <laughs> you once said that you were anxious because people might not like the book um it's a great book why were you worried Gosh, what, where have we got that from? Um, um, it's a very serious interview. Um, well, they made it sound very serious in The Guardian when the book came out, I think. Uh, oh, dear. Yeah, I wasn't on my best form that day, to be honest. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think most authors are scared that people won't like their book, aren't they? I don't know. Yeah, um, I absolutely. Think, oh, Lord. I mean, I, think, I, th I suppose in all seriousness... Uh, there's perhaps a, fi a fear that uh, I don't know, you know what um, we're having yesterday um, a great friend of ours Emma Southern who does the Romans um, was having this, a problem on Twitter with a lot of uh, men basically giving her the now now little girl speech because she challenges assumptions about the Roman Empire and she talks about things like ethnicity um, and gender and it challenges the norm of what people are used to and I suppose was there a fear when you were writing and sort of saying look everybody there were all these black people living in Tudor England and they weren't slaves was there a worry that you that people might have I don't know do people do people react negatively when you challenge things with work like this I think it's awful if they do <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, I suppose I haven't had as much negative feedback to my face as you might as you might suggest think that you might. You know, I haven't really got a full army of trolls. Um, That's good. <laughs> hearing on Twitter, <laughs> who knows what people say you know, mm. behind their back? I don't know. Uh, I think there are a few. I suppose. I suppose there's always the issue of um, being white and writing Black history. I think there is sometimes that kind of um, feedback that you know this is you know, this isn't your story to tell. Yeah. But you, know, for every one person who said something like that to me, you know, ten people have been like, "We're so grateful that you have unearthed this stuff that we didn't know about." And it, it you know, we kind of felt like it must be true, but we didn't know. And uh, and I think it, it, I think it can be really valuable to challenge those assumptions because, mm. especially sort of when people think about a black history and they just always assume that the African people were enslaved, you know, throughout. Um, throughout Western history, and that's very damaging in a lot of ways, I think. But um, it's it's great that this book has led on to like the work that you do with schools and things in terms of raising the profile of ethnicity in England, like in the early modern period, isn't it? Hmm. Well, I hope so. Yeah, I'm yeah. working on that. Yeah, no, I've I've got um quite I'm, I've spoken at some of the main teaching teaching history conferences in the country and um, currently got a, a mailing list of almost 250 teachers who are you know keen on teaching black tutors uh, and we're working on um, teaching resources and lesson plans and schemes schemes of work is a phrase that I've learned from my <laughs> teacher friends um, but it just means a series of lessons um, but uh, yeah so so and, and people are sharing that um, and yeah it's quite a lively discussion on on Twitter as well and and so you know good good stuff and trying to progress that which is really great um, and you're actually involved in a project aren't you involving young writers yeah so that's a slightly different so that's where Diego comes in again because mm. uh, it's uh, so this is called colonial countryside and uh, it's working with the National Trust um, and the University of Leicester Creative Writing Department. 
and and school children so 10 year olds uh, and there are adult creative writers and these uh, 10 year olds from local schools uh, and there are 10 national trust properties which have some kind of colonial um history uh, connections with india or the caribbean um and uh, these these young people who are often from those sorts of backgrounds themselves are are confronting those histories, learning about them, writing short stories or poems or personal essays inspired by that. Um, and yeah, and these adult creative writers are doing that too. Um, and it's been really amazing to see the work that's come out of that. Um, but yeah, Diego's uh, one of the properties is Buckland Abbey near Plymouth and um, mm-hmm. Devon. And uh, that was owned by Francis Drake for some time. So, uh, so they've told Diego's story there. Um, they had a temporary exhibition about the circumnavigation voyage uh, last year, I think, that, that sort of featured Diego. It was really great to work with them on that. And um, yeah, so 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 it, there's lots 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 coming out of that. Um, you can follow them on Twitter or just search for Colonial Countryside. And yeah, the the Twitter account has got. Uh, you know, videos of some of these young people um, reading their poetry. And, you know, it's, it's, it's great. It's a really great project. It really is. Um, I'm really excited about what, because you've slightly, you've changed direction now um, with your research. I'm really excited to hear more about what you're doing now. You're working on Caribbean heiresses, aren't you? Yeah. So, so again, you know, this is something that's been on the back burner for a while. Uh, and it, it has got that uh, overlap, I suppose, with colonial countryside because of this kind of country houses element. Um you know, a lot of these heiresses lived in those kinds of houses. Uh, and that's actually how I came to the subject in the first place, because back in 2006, ahead of the bicentenary of the abolition of the slave trade, um, I, I was commissioned by English Heritage to do a survey of their properties, links with slavery and abolition. Uh, and um, I worked with um, a historian called Madge Dresser, and, and you know, together we sort of came up with, well, she came up with sort of 12, you know, 12 different potential ways a house might be linked. Uh, you know, and the, I suppose the most straightforward one you would assume is someone owns a plantation or is a, is a, is a trader in enslaved Africans themselves and they, those profits have, have built the house or bought the house. Mm. Uh, but there were actually quite a lot of other fit, sort of more indirect ways, like they could be a merchant trading in sugar or indigo or tobacco or, you know, a plethora of other um, slave produced goods, uh, or, you know, they could be involved uh, in the legal battles or, yeah, but, but, but the thing that caught my imagination was the heiress story. So the house could have been built or bought with money um, that had been brought in by marrying um, a wealthy woman whose money had come from, enslavement and uh yeah so one of these properties is battle abbey um in sussex built on the site of the battle of hastings so yeah it's like right you know the, the center of the english history myth um 1066 um and uh yeah so she she was um elizabeth vassal and she was an heiress to sort of three jamaican sugar plantations uh and much older godfrey webster married her uh, and she went to live at Battle Abbey, and uh, yeah, so I sort of, but she's got a crazy story, you know, they get divorced, she has lovers, she has a second husband, both these men take her maiden name to try and lay claim to the Jamaican money, uh, you know, when she eventually divorces the first guy, he then commits suicide, uh, but she, is, and at some point she fakes one of her daughter's deaths in order to try and keep her 
uh, because in those days, if you got divorced, the the husband got the children. Um, That's right. Yeah. So it's this crazy. So yeah, she's in Italy at the time, and she sort of buries a dead goat in a coffin at the British Embassy, and hides her daughter away in some kind of um, convent. Anyway, outstanding. Drama, <laughs> craziness. Um. So yeah, it, it's it's. I'm enjoying looking into that. Yeah, well, thanks so much for coming on to talk to us about Black Tudors and about what you're working on now as well. Uh, it's been really interesting. And uh, I really like that you're managing to sort of tell more about Britain's ethnic history as well, because it doesn't get done enough. Yeah, well, there's plenty of people working on it. So yep. I'll give you some ideas of who you can interview next. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks very much. Join us tomorrow. It's our 100th episode already and we will be talking to John Nicholl about his fantastic new book, Lancaster, about the greatest aircraft ever made. Um, I'm not having it on any other aeroplane. It wins, hands down, um, and you'll find out why. You can now nominate History Hack for an award. If you go to BritishPodcastAwards.com, you can nominate us for a Listener's Choice Award. Uh, You have to do your vote by the 6th of July 2020, uh, and they will announce the winner at the British Podcast Awards on Saturday, the 11th of July 2020. Uh, So if you wouldn't mind, we'd really appreciate it. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower, and I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.